This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. InsureTech Insider coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Sarah Koshansky, analyst at Business Insider Intelligence and regular guest on InsureTech's sister podcast, FinTech Insider. And today, they've let me host this show. I'm joined by some fantastic guests. Let me introduce them to you. First up, we have my co-host, Nigel Walsh, partner at Deloitte. Say hi, Nigel. Hi, guys. We also have David Williams, technical director at AXA. Say hi. Hello. Uh, Oliver Ralph, insurance correspondent at the FT. Hello. And Greg Brown, partner at Oxbow Partners. Hello. So today's show is all about autonomous vehicles and changing insurance models. With our guests, we're going to do a deep dive into the rise of autonomous vehicles and what that means for driving, road safety in general, and also how it impacts a traditional car motoring insurance model. But to start us off, Nigel, what are autonomous vehicles? Ooh, big question. So I'm kind of a car freak is that allowed to be saying that i'm a car i'm a car fan shall i say and really importantly i'm a tech fan so cars and tech together is kind of like my dream come true um so autonomous vehicles is kind of bringing both of those things together and in its most simple form is a vehicle that's able to sense its environment and move control itself or, or whatever else as you do to move without a human being so it's not just cars it could be any vehicle in theory. The, the, the way the um, market's been broken down quite nicely, actually, is different levels of autonomy, which is the easiest way to describe it. And I think um, the team around the table will actually jump in here as well accordingly. But simply put, there's five levels of autonomy. Level zero being absolutely no automation whatsoever. So you get into a 1960s car, there's pretty much no automation there whatsoever. Um, all the way through to level five, which is fully autonomous. And I think it's fair to say there's probably no fully autonomous vehicles on the road today whatsoever plenty in pilot and plenty being talked about at its most common level is something uh, known as level three or conditional assistance which is basically if you get into a modern modern day car today it will have driver lane assistance it will have it will know what's going on around you and all this information is being fed back to you to help you control the vehicle in a more safe and secure way so in terms of who's actually doing this, I mean, how much of this is the big names, the Teslas and the Googles of this world? And how much of this is actually players that people out there have never heard of? And how much of it is actually car manufacturers? So I think all of the above is a probably the, is the fairest way to say it. I, I also think Tesla, with all the hype and excitement that goes with them being an exciting tech company and having a, a great guy like Elon Musk uh, at, at the helm, have really and truly bought it to market quicker than anyone else with what they're up to with their vehicles and the uh, the, the new one that's just come out, but also the, um, what they had around autopilot and that sort of stuff. There's been loads of stories written about it. So th they have been a strong pioneer. Equally, the likes of Google with um, Waymo and all those sorts of guys have had some great success in this sort of space. 
But if you go look at what the investments have been made in, in self-driving vehicles or autonomous vehicles in general, billions is pouring in, absolutely billions. And I don't think you'll find a manufacturer, a mass manufacturer today that doesn't have a division or an office that's based out in Silicon Valley somewhere that's doing testing today that haven't partnered with both either an insurance company, a tech company, uh, a camera company, or all of the above. So if you're a motor manufacturer today, not only have cars been getting safer and more secure over the years, regardless, i.e. the invention of the seatbelt, all those simple things, but people have been pouring billions and billions into this going forward. And it's worth pointing out as well, there's not just the US, because you've got Jaguar Land Rover over here doing a lot of stuff up in Coventry. Um, so it's, it's definitely a global phenomenon, right? It's not just America. I would actually argue the UK is probably at the forefront of technology in this space right now. We have a brilliant initiative here uh, called Driven. Um, that's a consortium of folks um, that uh, have Oxbotica, that have XL Catlin, that have a whole host of other things, and they will drive a vehicle from Oxford to London and back again over the next 12 to 18 months or so. And there's a really uh, good roadmap of, uh, of folks that are involved in that. We've got four cities in the UK that have pilots and stuff like that. Randomly, I was reading the um, the town plan for Hertfordshire. I live in Hertfordshire and it came up on Twitter, comment on our town plan for future cities. <laughs> and it was, actually, I thought, I thought, this is really boring, but actually it was actually quite interesting because they talk about the number of people that are going to increase, the reliance on vehicles from getting from, place, from point A to point B and the impact of technology specifically on self-driving vehicles. So unfortunately, it's 117 pages long. I've not finished it, um, but I will go back to it and go, actually, how do I comment on this as, as an interested resident from using self-driving vehicles or autonomous vehicles to uh, make life better going forward. And that sounds like a great point to uh, bring in the rest of our guests. And we're going to expand the conversation a little bit now. And we're going to start talking more about um, insurance specifically and um, autonomous cars more broadly as well. So um, the first question is, is this the year things get serious? So Nigel's just pointed out that people have been looking at this space and investing in this space for quite a while. Is this the year we start to actually see things go live? Who wants that one? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kick off. We're involved in five government-backed consortia, and they're getting to a point now where, uh, you know, in, in varying ways, autonomous vehicles are going to be tested on the roads. Uh, so I think that's quite exciting. Uh, and I also think if you look at the motor manufacturers, they're going to be wheeling out vehicles that aren't going to be fully autonomous, but they are going to be level three. You know, Teslas are great, but they're only about level two and a half. Uh, if there was such a thing. So I think motor manufacturers are going to start wheeling real product out. Uh, and I think the real debate is going to happen about, um, you know, the safety of vehicles, responsibility, all that sort of thing. It, fr from um, our perspective, as Nigel said, there's um, the six levels of uh, autonomy because there's zero plus one to five. Um, but levels four and five are the only ones that are truly autonomous. If you're in a level three vehicle, which you will be able to buy from uh, Audi, BMW, Mercedes sometime in 2018, um, it's just really, really good driver assistance. And one of the messages we need to get across is that there is a difference. So things might still go wrong. People will still have to intervene in these vehicles, but it's great technology, will make roads safer, and level four and five are not that far behind. Didn't didn't Audi also announce the level four first vehicle to be um, made public over the next 12 months as well, I think? Yeah, the, the problem with the definitions is they're, they're not great. And basically uh, what a level four 
vehicle says it has to behave autonomously within its design domain so you could specify a design domain as being you know be able to go around the car park by and itself cheat the rules almost. well yeah almost so that's why it's not very good but um if you look at jaguar and Land Rover, who are part of one of the consortia that we're involved with you can auto drive in coventry and milton Keynes. they've decided they're not going to build level three vehicles they're going to go straight to level four because they're concerned about the safety issues and that uncertainty as to about who's responsible so that's a really interesting point in terms of you know that that's the the first question that everybody instantly asked when you talk about the cars the, the cars of the whatever level you call it that you envisage not even having a steering wheel so like jm uh, gm has said they're going to build one without a steering wheel this year um the first question everybody asks is well, is that safe so you know do you do you actually think this will make driving safer like in the next 12 months or is this a long way off actually getting autonomous cars on the road to such an extent where you can swivel the chair around and play a board game with your family when you're stuck in a traffic jam I can't see that happening in the next 12 months. And actually, most of the manufacturers are talking about three years from now when they expect truly level five being on the roads. And because then going back to your, your question about is this the year it takes off, that question divides into lots more questions. So, so one of them is, is the industry going to be doing significant testing, working very closely with insurers, AXA and Excel Cantlin have been mentioned, to understand how this works and get the technology working in the next 12 months i think no one no one would disagree that 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 that's absolutely what's going to happen are we going to see autonomous cars on the road at scale that we're talking three years from now and that's because the problem divides into the technology the regulation and then the consumer adoption which is a whole minefield I i think the consumer adoption thing is perhaps where it gets delayed most because every time I've seen a survey of what people think, the, the people are always very sceptical about whether they would want to sit in a driverless car. And every time one of these has even the slightest prang, it's all over the headlines, it's all over TV and the newspapers, regardless of the fact that human-driven cars have... 80% of the accidents. <laughs> lots of hundreds of accidents all over the place all the time. Every time there's an accident involving one of these, it will be combed over. So I think the consumer adoption is going to take quite a long time. I think it's going to take a while for people to get used to the idea. Actually, a question to that is, is it time or is it, un- is it variance on time? Because people might just accept it. And then it, adoption would happen quite quickly versus variation on that time. Yeah, we're also talking about very specifically consumers in driverless cars here. What about the other vehicles that are being autonomous? What about the fleets of lorries that follow each other along the, you know, they, they the look like to be like this. Yeah, I was going to say like those little trains that connect together with magnets is what I envisage them doing. Um, but like, aren't, are, are they closer to being to being out there? Uh, the, the technology is is being accelerated. I think nothing drives development like a business case, and there are some massive, massive savings. The government have um, sort of allocated areas of motorway for testing these vehicles. We've got customers who are you know, buying kit that they can't actually use legally in the the UK yet, but they're buying kit to check it out. If you think um, of the savings, I mean, we we did a report um, because the, the haulage industry is struggling to recruit drivers. Nobody wants to be a long distance lorry driver anymore so people worry about automation getting rid of jobs but this could actually be an area where it works well and we got some economists and they worked out over a 10-year period it would save the uk haulage industry this technology 33 billion (laughs) pounds so yeah they're all in then they're already looking at that and and, and i do i do think that yeah there's all sorts of questions you know hub spokes is it just gonna be on motorways certain times of the day all that's to be debated but if we get 38 ton arctics 
driving themselves hurtling past us on a regular basis. I think, strangely, that's one of the things that will encourage public adoption because they will see those in other vehicles. But also scheduling of road usage at better times. Why do we need to have someone driving through the night at three in the morning when actually you can send them all down at the quietest time of the evening or whatever else it might be to try and avoid congestion if we're going to have more cars on the road anyway? Absolutely. And, and I, I think the government is avoiding one of the issues that it needs to look at because um, I, I think this technology if we don't approach it properly, could end up bringing more congestion because if transportation is easier, then people might all want to take advantage of it, abandon public transport and travel at the same time. So, so you know, things like road pricing, I think, need to come into the equation. So, so to bring this, to bring this, you know, back round to the insurance question, if you're saying that those, you know, the, the fleet owners and the haulage companies are already investing in this technology and, and I think we generally agree that that looks like it's going to come before the consumer cars... Insurers are already ready for that. Insurers have got, you know, they're working with them. There are price plans in place. They've already, you know. I I wouldn't say price plans are in place, but we were involved with the government in coming up with the automated electric vehicle bill. Uh, I think that's a major step forward. I think it actually puts the UK um, ahead of a lot of other countries. And we don't have to worry about 52 different states all making up their own rules. (laughs) It's straightforward. Um, More straightforward. And we don't have the right side of the road as well. Yeah, exactly. clearly. Um, so, so I think we're really ready for it. No, we haven't got a clue what to charge yet. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we're we're writing test vehicles currently. You know, so we're providing cover, and I'll be honest, to a large degree, I'm making up the premiums. But you know, until we get real data, then that's what you have to do. But the insurance industry, rather than hiding away from it, is saying we want this future and we want to encourage it. So it's not going to put them out of business. It's actually going to give you more business. Well. But th- th- this is the big debate, and we have a personalised carrier in front of us, potentially. If we are a commercialised carrier, we have to understand who owns the risk, which is the big question that people will therefore ask you. So if, when my car is in o- autonomous mode and it's driv- driving itself and we have an accident, who is responsible for that? And the government have, 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 have intervened and basically said, here's what the, the, uh, the rule shall be. If it's parked at my local supermarket and someone runs down the side with a trolley and it's not in autonomous mode, who's responsible for that? So I think we'll, have, we'll see niche products. Um, we'll see things coming out that augment the risk. But David, maybe you're, or, or Greg, you guys, your, your view on who owns the risk going forward? I mean, I think, I mean, obviously that's the critical challenge. And going back to the point about autonomous commercial vehicles, I mean, those, that's a commercial product. The insurance products are commercial already. So you, you don't have that existential debate, as it were, there. But in the in the personal line side, I mean, I, I can only imagine it'll be the government making a call on it at some point. And I don't, I mean, personally, I don't see a proliferation of, of, of lots of sub-products. Certainly in the UK, we're used to roll-up products. I mean, diff- it's different in European markets where you're used to your home insurance policy being three bits rather than one bit. But, you, but to your point, you still get back to the is it going to be personal? Who is pays it going to be commercial? In the case of an accident. But I mean, all those things are integrated. And so, for, I mean, manufacturers are capturing more of the insurance themselves anyway, as they get more global and they realise actually, why are we, why are we missing out on this opportunity? It's unclear to me. But, but, but see, I think it's really clear. I think the government has decided it doesn't want squabbles between motor manufacturers and insurers that, you know, discourage people from travelling in driverless cars. So the bill clearly states that regardless of whether it's an autonomous or normal vehicle, an RTA-compliant, Road Traffic Act-compliant policy is required. And if it's an autonomous vehicle, then there's pretty much a strict liability on the insurer to deal with the claim in the first instance. So an insurance policy is still required. Whoopie-doo, yeah, we're still employed. Um, 
And then, yes, we can uh, maybe seek recoveries from motor manufacturers, software designers, infrastructure builders, whatever. But Joe Public can be happy that they know they are compensated. And, of course, the, the driver as was becomes a passenger, becomes a potential victim in an autonomous vehicle. So it's really, really important. I do think there's going to be a massive impact on the insurance industry. That's why we're involved. I do think that premiums are going to drop off a cliff eventually because roads are going to be much safer and there are going to be less accidents. Yeah, but so that's not a bad thing. There's a One analyst says that average global insurance premium is going to fall from $540 a year to $330 by 2060 because the roads are going to be safer and there's going to be fewer accidents. Now, given that the about 40% of global PNC insurance revenues come from motor, that's a big drop for the insurance industry. And I, I do wonder how much the industry as a whole is ready for this and how much a lot of the motor carriers at the moment are just sort of saying, well, we'll be all right for the next few years. Uh, that's kind of beyond where this current management team is looking, so we'll be all right. Yeah, see, see it's, it is interesting we talk about motor carriers and insurers. So AXA, big old insurer, and we write commercial lines and personal lines, and we write a load of products as well as motor. So from our perspective, we want to influence and encourage it. I mean, who doesn't want safer roads, less deaths, injuries, something like that? Um, but also we have the advantage that we can simply move our capital, move our people onto other lines of business. And it's not going to happen overnight. But I, I wouldn't like to be a monoline personal lines motor insurer at this point in time but there's also a gradual move from where we are today whether you're a commercial driver or, or a personal driver and the i'm gonna say the rise of telematics i still think telematics for me is um traditionally aimed at young drivers now moving to other segments but i think the the growth of that market where we had a three or three to five percent in the uk adoption right now and, and growing still um Italy, very, very different, obviously. Do you want to give us a little overview of telematics? Because what? I think there are different interpretations of what it is and how it works as well. I'm going to let Oliver do this. Right? <laughs> this man, if you Google, if you Google Oliver Ralph, FT and uh, telematics, you get a really good video of someone testing it all out and what it means. So Oliver. So I decided to, to try it out last year. So the telematics is, for me anyway, it's, it's little black boxes that sit in cars or maybe even on your phone as, as an app that monitors how well you drive and tells your insurance company well you, how well you drive. And if they like how well you drive, they put your premium down. And if they don't, they put it up. So I thought I'd give it, put it to the test. I drove around a car um, around Hertfordshire, not far from Nigel's house. <laughs> Just, and uh, I, I felt... My driving was okay in the end, thankfully, but I, I find myself driving a lot more cautiously than I might do otherwise because I was quite conscious. Partly there was a box recording everything and partly that my cameraman was filming me. <laughs> but I, I, I found myself driving quite cautiously because the box was there, which I suppose is part of the point. It doesn't really need to do anything. The box could be empty. All it needs is for me to think it's recording something. But anyway, if it, the, the, the box records the data and if you're driving too fast, cornering too sharply, driving late at night on certain types of roads, that suggests to the insurer that it's more expensive and so they should change your premium accordingly. And right now it's optional, isn't it? You, you, there, is, yeah. there aren't any insurers that require you to do this. No. There are some that offer you the option to do it's this. It's popular with younger drivers who can save a lot of money on their premium if they install one of these boxes in their cars. I spoke to some of my colleagues and friends. I told them I was doing this. Would, would they want to do it? And they almost universally said, absolutely no way. Would they, they, want, they do not want an insurance company watching what they're doing. Is it that or is it the word that their premiums will go up? Well, both at the same time. Yeah. It's, the, but it's a flip side. But we're, but we're back to my pet hate, which is we end up trying to work out how we reduce our premiums by putting more stuff towards you by mitigating risk or otherwise. So we're back to a price 
play rather than a value play of what you have from insurance, which is the age order debate. We might as well be on a price comparison website and getting the, the, yeah, the cheapest see, one. But see, I, way more to I, it I, I strangely disagree. I think some people, um, you know, like Aviva, for instance, have moved into sort of gamification of telematics. And I think that's great. It I think an app, doesn't it? Well, it's, yeah, uh, absolutely. And yeah, having a bit of competition between, you know, it's a bit like our Fitbit challenges, yeah. Nigel. <laughs> you know, who, who's the worst driver in the family? That sort of thing. So, so I think people are moving away from it. The problem is that motor insurance is a price play mainly but the other thing is and particularly when it's in an app so you've got a, a familiar interface i think we can influence people's driving i mean you, you know oliver commented that just by having the box in the car he was um, driving more cautiously that might be boring but it made him safer yeah, i think totally agree. so so if, uh, if, if you can yeah. i think it's a great yeah. idea i've played about with the number of the apps that are out they're all very cool they say acceleration deceleration hesitation speed cornering just by going fast doesn't mean to say that you are a dangerous driver. Any credence by, by going slow doesn't mean to say you're a safe driver. So there's some really good insights into the use of telematics. I think as this grows and we go from three to five to actually 10 to 20, or importantly, we flip from opt-in to opt-out, and that might be down to road charging, toll roads, all the things that you might need going forward. Um, we're not, it's kind of, it's kind of a natural transition into autonomous, or will it be, telematics will get skipped over completely and, t- and autonomous will just take over it com- completely. Well, I mean, there's, there's something to be said as well about the fact that people are just buying fewer cars as well in the US and in, and in the UK as well. People are upgrading their cars less frequently um, because partly because they can't afford it. Partly in the US, they've got a terrible auto loan problem. But, it, you know, if, if the cycle used to be that you got a new car every 18 months and then it becomes every three years and et cetera, et cetera, is that going to draw out when we see these products coming in? Or is it, you know, you think it's going to be a, a step, it's going to be a sudden change and everybody has to have one now. So, you know, like like they're doing with um, diesel engines in London, you know, no more diesel engines, that's it. No more cars without telematics, there's, there's that's definitely it, you all have to upgrade. There's two clear markets. There's the, but I've bought a new car, or I've got my new company car, whatever it might be, and it's included by default because no car today is given to you without something that's connected in it by, by default. You've got folks like... Um, uh, the AA and others creating OBD devices that give you car genie and all these sorts of cool things. And it's just getting more and more connected. So it's, it's whether or not you have a net new car or you have a, a an older car that has an aftermarket product. I mean, go back to Mobileye and Intel and what they've done. I mean, they, these guys are always finding ways to add more tech to the car. That, of course, then adds gamification and other issues, gives you distracted driving which is another issue for insurance because we go, actually, we're on our phones too much. And the latest iOS update, everyone... But for the, for the Apple fans, those that are driving along says, and even if you're on the train now, says, I'm driving, so it doesn't show you your screen or your notifications in a move to get away from being constantly distracted. And I think that's a huge play for some of the insurance providers right now. I think one of the, the, the big things with the shift, though, from telematics devices towards autonomous cars, and it's a, it's a big one for the insurers, is who are, the question of who owns the data. If there's a telematics device that an insurer has bought and an insurer has installed in the car, then the insurer will collect all the data and will be able to use that to tell how well you're driving. If it's an autonomous car or even a semi-autonomous car and the, the devices and technology has been put in there by the manufacturer, well, in that case, the manufacturer owns the data, not the insurance companies. 
But there, but there's, but it's a controversial area. The sharp intake of breath from David tells you how worried the insurance industry is by this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the government know that data is the next, you know, battleground to a degree. Um, Eighteen months ago, German motor manufacturers were saying exactly what you said—that it's their data. I think they now accept that it's uh, consumer data. Um, They're proposing sort of compromises where um, maybe uh, data is available following an accident via third party. but there's 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 a huge opportunity with this data. If you look at the motor industry currently, there's numerous other suppliers that pro- provide products and services off the back of being able to access that market. Now, if the motor manufacturers are allowed to just keep all that data to themselves and control all the um, other services that could be provided, I think that's that's you know a, a, a step in completely the wrong direction. I also think that the idea of you're debating who's to blame for um, an accident. You want to learn about um, the accident so you can stop it happening again. And the only person that's got the data that can tell you exactly what happened is the one of the defendants. That can't be right. So I think there will need to be legislation about provision of data. But of course, GDPR um, isn't going to make it any easier. And to Greg's point as well earlier, I think actually goes back to consumer adoption and all these things. Are we ready? I mean, Sarah was saying how bad a driver we were, we, she was before we started. I was um, doing fact, nothing of no, the sort. Sarah's, Sarah's mum was saying how bad a driver you were. But if you were driving, would she be, would she feel more comfortable in a autonomous vehicle with you both chatting, as Greg said, playing chess with the, the chairs flipped round? Or is it just the fact she's in a car with you? I mean, I, Well, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of arguments there. One is, uh, you know, Aside from all this, I really like to drive. I actually enjoy driving. I enjoy controlling the vehicle. I enjoy, you know, when you're driving along country roads. So I don't want an autonomous car because I actually enjoy the driving experience. So but there, there, but there are transition be. points to that. So if you're well, sitting, so I mean, survey not if one, you haven't got a steering wheel. Okay, but, that, but that's a, but that's a, but that's a. I mean, that's a that's a future point. But if you're sitting in traffic, as I was the other day, and you've got two screaming children in the back, the ability to put the steering wheel away or whatever that is and turn around because we're going at two miles an hour. So so I think with the kind of going back to the point about consumer adoption, there feels like there's kind of use case adoption as well as technology improvement. Yeah. So the idea of us saying, actually, I don't want to drive at this point. I want to turn around and chat to my children. I'm only going at two miles an hour. So the worst I'll have is very minor neck ache as a result of a it's slight... It's night Take control kit, you know. Yeah. So my point was going to be, I don't think that we will ever... I don't think we will, within the next 20, 25 years, reach a point where everybody is in one of those cars where there's no steering wheel because there'll always be people who want to drive. There will always be... There will be some people who... Yeah. Unless, I mean, unless the it. government makes wholesale decision that everyone has to have an autonomous car and I just can't see them doing that because half of the population is going to say, I don't want to have to so change do, my do car you, because do you of think you. Also, so there is that, but I think maybe there's the middle step, which David mentioned earlier, is what about public transport? So what about driverless buses or driver, you know... You mean what like a, the DLR? What, yeah, 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 exactly. Like the DLR. Well, that stuff yeah, without there. rails. Yeah, yeah, but, but <laughs> what we're talking about is, is safer vehicles, safer transportation. And I do think that it will be those commercial applications yeah. that see more rapid adoption. And then I think we'll see how safe they are and they will be adopted. My, my personal preference is I, I would like... I love driving. Um, you mentioned country roads. I love, you know... Go to the station. I've got sort of you know twenty mile drive home. Country roads around Newmarket, Bury St Edmunds. It's wonderful. But then I pop down to Bristol to visit my relatives, and I, it's M11, M25, <laughs> M4. Oh, that's exciting! Does anybody enjoy that? <laughs> no. So to be able to let the vehicle do the work then, and know that genuinely, when the technology's at you know its finished state, it will be safer than when I'm driving it. I think that's great. 
Yeah, and I think I think you know we we, we need to sort of round up um, this conversation. I think a way to sum it up is that we have all kind of agreed that there's a step there's a step change here. There's going to be some definitely some stages. We're not you know in five years time going to be sitting in those cars with no steering wheels. It's going to be the commercial cars, the commercial uses that come first, and that's presumably where insurance will come in because they'll have that data to start thinking about okay now we have some data which we can use from commercial vehicles what can we do with well but but the other aspect is one of the great things about the government funding these consortia around the country is that yeah we can be involved and we can get data so i said we're involved in five rsa are involved in one and direct line are involved with one so we are getting masses of data from those test vehicles they're not you know fully fledged real world applications but it's it's more than putting a finger in the air so genuinely by the time they're on the roads i think we'll have the right regulatory framework from the government and insurers some insurers will be familiar and will be able to provide the products in pricing is it is it clear winners and losers in this space are the motor manufacturers going to be the clear winners because they've now as you say got the data or that they may have to share it or whatever else they've got the control they know all the vehicles and whatever else does the government win do the insurance companies lose or do we think it's actually just going to be different no better, no worse. Well, we just spread risk. So, you know, people forget this. It's it's not about who, you know, if we pay out more than the motor manufacturers, then premiums are going to be higher. If we pay out less because there's lots of recoveries from motor manufacturers, then, you yeah, know, premiums are going to be less. I think, I genuinely think the winner, I know this sounds cheesy, but I think it is going to be the consumer because they're going to have safer roads. They're going to be less, less deaths. So, you know, we shouldn't, we're going to need to change our business models. It's going to be a massive change for us, but it's going to be a massive impact for, you know, motor manufacturers. You know, Ford saying, they're going to be a transportation provider rather than a manufacturer of motor vehicles you know so so those that adapt and recognize the changes and embrace it i think they'll they'll be successful we've talked about autonomous vehicles what we haven't really covered really is shared vehicles or shared ownership and i think there's a good matrix as you'd expect from from any consulting firm around um uh, you know do you own do you share is it autonomous is it non-autonomous and i think the shared autonomous may be the very interesting point to go to going forward about actually a fully autonomous level five vehicle will be too expensive for almost all of us to actually go and own and as a result we might share one it'll take and it'll do the almost a hop and stopper type service from point a to but point I, b i'm, I'm skeptical about whether this this will take off this idea that we're all going to be sharing cars because people like the convenience of having a vehicle available at at a precise moment absolutely guaranteed when i need to take my kids to school i need the car outside the door when i manage to actually push them out of the door i don't need it five minutes later because by that time it's too late there's also a huge psychological thing there as well people don't like sharing space certainly not we, do, we do need to be we do need to be conscious of looking 10 years out and assuming we think the same way who would have predicted social media in the way that it is completely changed our lives if you look back in 2000 yeah looking 10 years ahead we just need to be a little bit careful of assuming Assuming that the world would not be as changed and we will not be as different. So that's that's a great that's a great point to wrap up on. So if we're not going to talk ten years ahead, give me give me you three give me your predictions for twelve months in the future. What are we looking at here? We're looking at. So I think we're looking at successful tests on the road, and I won't talk about all the details of the insurance stuff because David will cover that off. But insurers will have the data, and we as consumers, I think, will be no more aware of it than we are currently within twelve months if we're looking at that. Uh, I think uh, the automated electric vehicle bill would have passed through Parliament and therefore we'll have the regulatory framework. I agree. I think testing will be going on. We'll have 40 pods pootling around Milton Keynes as part of you know, UK Auto Drive. And there will be some level three vehicles, you know, really, really good level, almost level four vehicles uh, on the road. But it will only be uh, rich people that can afford to buy them initially. 
I think we'll still be testing. We'll still be at pilots. We'll still be debating whether how long it's going to take. I don't think we'll be a lot further on 12 months. Sounds good. My one thing to add is I think we're going to get different headlines in the news. I'm going to say tabloid press will start saying Granny Edith, 98, gets lift for the first time in self-driving vehicle and now has mobility back and praises how good it is and it will flip from these are all there to kill us and I'll never get in it to actually look at what is enabling our aging population brilliant well that rounds up the round table thank you so much everybody for joining us um so where can our listeners find out a bit more about you david uh twitter at axa david w and if you go to the axa.co.uk website we've got some interesting reports on autonomous vehicles brilliant oliver on Twitter, it's at Oliver underscore Ralph and also at FD.com. And Greg. On Twitter, it's at BrownGreg2 and uh, OxbowPartners.co.uk. Right. So first up in the news today, we have a story from Business Insider. Um, GM has just revealed a fully autonomous electric car and it doesn't have a steering wheel. We sort of made reference to this earlier, but what are your thoughts on this? I think this would freak the hell of us out, personally speaking. So back to parents, um, people that are used to, we've grown up with wheels in cars and you get in, you put your hands on the wheel. And when you're abroad, you get in the wrong side of the car and go, there's no wheel and it freaks you out. So for me, I think it would freak me out. Is it? Is it a? Is it a? I want to be in control. Is it a? I like to drive, or is it a? I don't feel safe. I'm. I'm never going to be in control. That's what it is. It's fear of not having it. So yeah. whether you can, where, where's the emergency override? Where's the press the button like you do in the movies and the autopilot pops up and stuff? Are you afraid of the DLR? No, not at all. So that's interesting, isn't it? We just because we talked about this earlier, like the DLR is a driverless train. So that's not scary. It's Why on is it rails. Driving? You made the point. It's on <laughs> rails. And I haven't got to worry about anyone else crashing into me, Touchwood. Right. So that's the other thing. Um, how safe are driverless cars? Because it's, it's not necessarily, it, even when you're a driver and when you are a good driver, it's not always you that's the problem, right? It's other people. So if we're talking about, the interesting thing here as well, just to, to, to bring it back to the point, is that um, GM have said that they could apparently roll this out in seven US states without creating any legal problems. Now, I looked into this um, and apparently level four uh, autonomous cars, which is what this is, um, are technically still fully autonomous, um, but they still have a steering wheel and pedals. Now, US law is written to say that cars must have a steering wheel and pedals. Sorry, so this isn't level four, this is level five. So, the point being that in America right now, you can have a driverless car so long as there is a steering wheel and pedals, which brings it back to your point about control, right? So GM is saying, we will take away the steering wheel and pedals. A, that would make it illegal, and B, that takes away the, the element of control. So it's that kind of final but scheduled, hurdle. scheduled to hit the roads in 2019, I mean, you, you could argue this is about being provocative and starting to show the art of the future. So without doubt, there will be pods. You go to uh, an airport and uh, pods take you from the car parking space to the terminals these days we're used to that sort of transport we're just not used to it on the roads there and i think it's back to the points that the team made earlier around customer adoption one is a freaking me out when you see lots of manufacturers go we've now released our autonomous vehicle and uh, by the way you didn't even have to own it so it's not really a vehicle you're going to buy is it is this something you're going to share you're going to um summon it on your app on your phone and you're going to have an experience where it's about mobility not driving I guess it's also that kind of um, the 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 herd status. Whereas if everybody else was in an entirely autonomous car and all the cars were in control, 
I'd probably feel a lot safer. Yeah. But if you're at that halfway point where some people are in autonomous cars and some people are still driving, you know, the there's, old-fashioned There's no car. get out of jail point. There's no, there's something coming towards me, swerve left, or I've seen a rabbit in the, in the road, swerve right, whatever it might be. There's nothing. But you have to, the difference here for me is you are in an experience of a, a mobility experience, not driving the car. So No move- different than a taxi, right? Well... Yeah, except you hope the taxi driver has some control. <laughs> Although I think I may have been in some taxis, but that's not the case. Um, but moving on to the next story, which sort of ties nicely into that, which bridges the gap between that semi-autonomous and fully autonomous vehicles, is a story from TechCrunch about Nissan Tech allowing a car to read your mind to boost reaction times. So the story here is that apparently this will be brain-to-vehicle, aka B2V tech, which will anticipate your moves before you make them, um, you know, braking, applying the acceleration, etc., etc., and apparently improve reaction times by around 0.2 to 0.5 seconds so would that make you feel better Nigel so I I actually really like this I think this is super cool and I had the chance to go down to one of um, IBM's labs many moons ago where they put a thing on my head asked me to do a number of different thoughts and I was able to control an electric uh, radio control car at the time using my thoughts I could go forward backwards whatever else and you can go and see this sort of technology anywhere these days I, I actually think this is actually super cool technology and you won't even know you've got it at some point. It's like ABS. You get in a car without ABS and you definitely know you've not got it. You get into a car with ABS these days, you don't even think twice. You just know is it there. And if you have to brake harshly, you get the shudder or the judder. Of it. You won't even know this is happening. And 0.02 to, to, to 0.05, or say 0.5, may seem nothing. But if that's the difference between life and death for 1% of the people that are killed on the roads, that's a huge saving. It, it goes back towards the point that we made over and over again today is about all of this technology is to a certain extent about making the roads safer, about making driving safer, because driving is not a safe thing to do right now. So I, I guess anything that can do that and reduce accidents will will attract attention. Renault did something similar, actually. Renault had a, uh, a picture online recently where they had, I think it was Renault, where they had a headset or a VR headset where you could actually look at what was going on in this headset whilst you're at the steering wheel. Now, that freaked me out because you're basically your eyes covered while you're at the steering wheel. That just seemed really odd. But something like this, this seems non-intrusive. So I quite like this one. Interesting. Okay. You wouldn't object to it in your car, would you? Well, it depends how it's reading my brain. <laughs> like, if it's brain to vehicle, I want what to know. What are you afraid like, of? Well, I have to say that when I'm driving along the motorway, if you're doing a long drive, do you never have that, that thing where your mind starts to wonder? I'm 100% like, focused on the road, Sarah. And so are you for the insurance purposes, aren't you? <laughs> it's all right. I don't own a car, own a car at the moment. Um, no, I mean, that's what would concern me is uh, this brain to vehicle that people, you know, how, how, how is it actually working out what you think? Let's move on and away from autonomous cars to India, where apparently Amazon has entered the insurance market. Um, It is reportedly, according to the Insurance Times, investing in an Indian insurtech called Akko, I believe. Um, It hasn't been confirmed by either Amazon or Akko, but the idea is that Amazon will do what all insurers are terrified of and co-create insurance products to be sold at point of sale through its website. What, what do we think of this one? So, so I think there's two things that are interesting here. One, Amazon and two, India. Let, let's address them separately if we can. So Amazon has long been, along with our favourites, Gaffer and Bats, all have been said, well, they're going into insurance, they're going to kill the market, everyone be afraid very, very quickly and, and run for the hills or partner or fight. And I think the even the mention of Amazon in the insurance world, and there's been a whole host of um, press over the last four to six months about them um, looking for people people to recruit into this sort of space to grow their business people wonder what their 
play is going to be in this space? Are they a underwriter? Are they a capital provider? Uh, are they a claims company? Are they point of sale? Or read the other way, what part of my business will they cannibalize? So I think Amazon in general, given their capability, the scale, their speed, is appearing as a threat. I've long maintained that they're a part of the value chain, not there to replace insurers. The second part of that for me is, is India. And I think the Indian insurance market is super interesting right now with a whole host of players uh, starting up and, 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 and opening. So if you look at the overall population and the size of the market opportunity, we're talking hundreds of millions of people that we could go after from an insurance perspective to enable to do new things or ensure a whole new uh, raft of products and services that, the, the, that these individuals want, whether it's general insurance or life insurance makes it a really interesting market. So the fact you've now got a huge organization like Amazon with a massive market opportunity like India is a really interesting combination. Not not to forget that you've got people like Flipkart and everyone else out there already, or the likes of um, Vodafone and Aviva that have joined forces and everything else. I mean, do we think India is going to be a bit like, so if you look at China now, nearly all insurance is sold online and to a certain extent by those big, uh, some of the players you just mentioned, you know, the 10 cents, the, the Am financials of this world. Do you think that India is going to follow that pattern as well? And we're going to see, you know, a huge ramp up in people buying insurance, but they're all going to do it online it's affordability and, and the online piece is the same issue that you have in in, in any other in, i guess in other developing countries where you have access to broadband mobile smartphone i mean you could argue i say the word nokia but nokia used to talk about the next billion customers being um, developing countries where people didn't have bandwidth or whatever else but look at what happened with mpesa we managed to get around that with certain things i think the exact same will happen here they we, we do have smartphones obviously in india we do have capability we're building better infrastructure and, and i think it will be they'll skip the whole Let's go do it the old way and go straight to mobile first. Huge new demographic just waiting to be tapped. And a a growing level of affluence in certain pockets of the country. Um, and so, so staying on Amazon, um, but moving away from India, we're talking about, you know, the projects they're doing and how they're going to staff them. This this final story today is um, is an interesting one. So again, from the Insurance Times, apparently Amazon was trying to poach, uh, in quote marks, Lemonade staff. Lemonade uh, co-founder, I can't say the name. Shy. Shy Winninger. Winninger. Uh, quoted on LinkedIn as saying, I wonder if that's their idea of supporting the startup ecosystem and they are re- reconsidering using Amazon AWS. So I think this, to me, this just... Uh, hammers home the struggle for talent that every legacy player is having. And if Amazon's having it as well... Come on, this is good nothing but good PR. And whilst it may be 100% true... I'm not denying, Chai, what you said or not. You can. How many people have been approached or looked to be poached from organisation to organisation on a daily basis? So it's an interesting story. I saw the same about... Um, uh, another insurance organization having been poached by by another organization and you think to yourself this is just daily life so it's i'm not sure this is even a story it is I, 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 it is quite funny that they brought aws into it and said we're going to consider it as a supplier i i, I find that quite amusing it's quid pro quo the, well look period wherever we are in the fintech or insurtech uh, arena to your point there is a race for talent and you can look in any of the press whether it's uk us or elsewhere and there is a race for great great talent i think we saw on one of the shows previously um some of these great developers now have their own agents when it gets i kid you not when they have their own agents because they're the rock star coder for a certain skill set um when it gets to that level you know there's a, a shortage and we have to do something about it brilliant okay well thank you very much nigel and that wraps up another insurtech insider thanks to all our guests david greg and oliver and of course my co-host nigel as always you can find the show on twitter at instech insiders and if you like what you've heard this week don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on itunes 
If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>